welcome to the Five Aero Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the global aviation industry. Today, we're joined by Peter Lynham and Chris Tarry to discuss the latest developments in the aviation industry. In each episode, we look at the latest aviation news and then take a deep dive into one of the bigger issues facing the industry. This week, we're looking at the differences between the hub and the point-to-point airport and the common and distinct challenges COVID has posed for these different types of airports and how they can be overcome. But before we do that, we're going to get straight in and take a look at the news. So Peter joins me for the news. We've got three items to look at. First of all, some very, very good news about vaccines and airport testing. Next, we're going to look at the second European lockdown and the impact on the restart. And thirdly, we're going to look at some important airline announcements and what they might mean for the short and medium term. But Peter, let's start with the good news. We have a vaccine. Well, we have an announcement about a vaccine and we have an announcement about UK airport rapid testing. Tell us about them. Yeah, we needed some good news, didn't we, Andrew? It was interesting because I was out this morning and I was checking the financial markets before I was checking the news. And I saw that airline stocks and hotel stocks and the like were up 35% at lunchtime. Uh, at first, I thought it was a mistake on <laughs> um, on Apple. But as soon as you go to the news, you saw that Pfizer and their partners in the German laboratory reckon they've got a vaccine which will be at least 90% effective. And I guess if, it, if it's that way now, they'll only improve on that. So straight away, you see the markets responding to that because they think that maybe the recovery uh, will come slightly earlier than some of the more pessimistic people thought it would do. And let's put the vaccine to one side because obviously it's such great news and you always have to be very careful about these announcements, but it's the, it's the first piece of real positivity that we've had since March. But specifically for our podcast, let's talk about the announcement around UK airport rapid testing and, and what Grant Shapps was saying. Yeah, so we've seen various announcements on airport testing, and I guess it's important to to keep them separate. So first of all, Heathrow um, has been doing pre-departure testing for people traveling to Hong Kong. And last time I checked on this, they've done about a thousand tests. The average turnaround was 68 minutes, which is quite impressive. Mm. I don't think they were capturing 100% of the cases, though. So that, that clearly isn't a foolproof test. We've seen this weekend in Liverpool the trial of doing kind of easy mass testing, as, as I would call it. And the thought is that uh, if that proves to be successful, it's the sort of thing that we could bring into airports again to, to test on departure, particularly for destinations that require that prior to your arrival. And then the third one, as you mentioned, Andrew, is the Grant Shapps announcement this morning that progress is being made at last towards a a new regime of testing people as and after they arrive in the UK from the so-called at-risk destination. So at the moment, um, if you travel into the UK from those destinations, you have a mandatory 14-day self-isolation period. And there's talk now that by doing a test on arrival and then a test a few days later, that could be cut to to seven days. And I've even seen five days mentioned today. And that's a vast improvement on where we are, because particularly for a lot of people going on a leisure trip, five days maybe is, is nowhere near as inconvenient, clearly, as 14. 
And actually, for people in the UK who are going through a four-week lockdown at the moment, um, five days is going to seem like a, a, a dream in the park compared to that. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think there's a couple of things, isn't there? Because if you look at the market constraints, we we've done a, another podcast over on Infracast, a video cast, actually looking at you know really deep into how the recovery works. If you look at the constraints, number one is obviously closed borders. If you can't fly, you, you if you can't go there, you can't fly. That's fine. Yeah. But definitely the next one is quarantine. That is the biggest barrier to the market restarting, and the, the answer to that is testing. Um, particularly around business travel. If you have to travel, if you have to quarantine for 14 days, you are not traveling for business under any circumstances. If we can get this right, this is what will impact the market. Um, Yeah, and I think there's another possibility that's been talked about for business traffic, um, whereby if if you're staying for a short period of time, maybe not overnighting or only doing one overnight, then you would be allowed to travel straight back again and then just deal with whatever restrictions are in your own country and and that would be logical as well because the current rules allow british people who've arrived back even from a high risk destination one of the allowable reasons to to leave your home within the 14 days is is to travel abroad again um, which kind of makes sense because you you're, you're exporting the risk if you like well, if you think about it, from here, from here in Dubai, the amount of people who would go home for Christmas or go home for half term or go home at any point, and they they, they can't because actually they, they would never come out of quarantine uh, in the UK by the time they come back. Yeah. Um, it is good news and we will monitor it really closely. We just touched on it there about the second lockdown. So slightly back down to earth. We're back into lockdowns. We've seen it across Europe. We've seen it across the UK last week. Again, announced with relatively little notice. Let's talk about those. Where are we with them? Yeah, there's some really depressing news, I think, particularly in in the UK. So we're recording this on Monday the 9th. Uh, Heathrow's gone back to single runway operations uh, from today because the demand does not require both runways to be in use. Manchester has gone back to a single terminal operation rather than a three terminal operation. And perhaps the most dramatic thing that I've seen is that Stansted is closing every night at 5pm. So it's now 11 minutes past five in the UK and Stansted just closed. Uh, It remains open overnight for cargo, but the passenger terminal closes at 1700 every day. Gatwick last Tuesday had 77 flights in the whole day. It was only a few months ago that our colleague Roland um, was working on a project at Gatwick to increase the number of flights per hour to 60. And now we're only seeing 77 in a day. So really depressing. Um, and we've also seen um, Wizz Air come out and talk about the recovery. And we've all seen uh, Eurocontrol. What are they saying? Yeah, so Wizz Air, the, the CEO, Joseph, has been quite optimistic as we've gone through this whole episode from March. But actually, even with Zara now saying the recovery might take five to 10 years. So you, you hear that word 10 mentioned for the first time. And that is the same as uh, Eurocontrol and the European Union stat for organisation. They've revised their forecast last week as well. They've gone for a a, um, an optimistic, a mid-range and a pessimistic forecast. And their pessimistic says that recovery won't be till 2029. So they're, they're going for nine years. But it's important to say that um, they're basing that on an assumption 
where the vaccines would prove not to be effective. And obviously, the good news that we've heard today, maybe we can discount that for a while. I suppose the, the slight cause for concern with Wizz Air coming out and saying five to 10 years is that Wizz Air are, are that low cost leisure friends yeah. and family market, which everyone is expecting that that will be the first thing to recover. You know, you get rid of you. The lockdowns are released. You're allowed to travel again. Right. I want to go and see my family. I want to go on. I can't look at these four world walls anymore. But if that type of airline is saying it's five to 10 years, that's not great for the market. That's right. And on one of our early podcasts, we were uh, postulating that theory that the leisure market would recover first. Since that time, we've seen hard evidence that that is the case. And airlines which were offering capacity on leisure flights from northern to southern Europe, for example, during the peak summer, um, the flights were full. Whereas there are plenty of examples of flights on business routes, maybe to places like Brussels and Geneva, where it's just half a dozen people and they may be paying a high fare and the aircraft may be carrying some cargo. But clearly it's, it's the leisure market that, that is going to come back first. And I suppose just carrying on the, the not brilliant announcements, we've had Lufthansa come out, we've had Etihad come out, and we've had Norwegian come out and say things to the market. What have each one of those said? So um, all of the airlines have been announcing their quarterly results. And the latest one that I saw was Lufthansa. And for the nine months to the end of September, they were reporting it's a loss of 3.5 billion euros, which is eye-watering, isn't it? But even more interesting, I think, and this really highlights the difficulty that airlines have, their passenger numbers uh, were down 72%. And bearing in mind that includes January and February, which uh, were relatively unaffected by the virus. So the numbers were down 72% in terms of their customers, but their number of employees only dropped by 2.2%. So it shows just how difficult it is to reduce your cost base when something like this happens. Obviously, you have to work out what it is you want to do, and then you have to negotiate with the trade unions and sell it to your people. And then there is naturally a, a notice period that needs to be given. And maybe they're held back on some of their employees using furlough schemes and hoping that the market might bounce back. But that's a, a huge difference, 72% on your demand side and 2.2% on your supply side. And it's a, it's a real challenge, isn't it, for the CFO, the CEO to start. They know they have to make cuts. They, you, they know where the market is, but also they have to be ready for the restart as well. They don't do. they? So you yeah. can't just fire staff because, OK, the market is flooded with aviation professionals, but you want your people who you've worked with and trust ready to go on your specific aeroplanes because it, it's often a common misconception. A pilot cannot just fly any plane, can they? It's very specific what they can and can't do. Absolutely. And it takes, as we know, a very long time to train and retrain a pilot. So it's really the pilots and the engineers who tend to be the people who are, who are let go last. Interestingly, another announcement that you may not have seen, Andrew, in the UK at the end of last week. So BALPA, which is the pilots trade union in the UK, actually put out a press release advising people not to follow the career of being a pilot for the next few years because they won't get a job. Mm. Um, and, and that was startling to, to read that. Now, Norwegian, they've come out and had announcements as well, haven't they? So we talked about the furlough scheme maybe is helping out in, uh, uh, in certain areas. What are Norwegian saying? 
So Norwegian, as we know, was a carrier which was expanding really rapidly prior to COVID and had a highly geared balance sheet. So there were kind of question marks against Norwegian's financial prospects even a year ago. And clearly that's not been helped by what's happened since. So this morning, the Norwegian government has announced it is not going to give any further aid to Norwegian. And Norwegian have have responded, as you might uh, imagine, very unhappy about that because they say that they're a key company for the country of Norway and they bring in tourists and they bring in business. But clearly the Norwegian government thinks it it just doesn't want to throw any more money in that direction. It it can't justify it, to to use their their words. So um, real question marks now, I'm afraid, about Norwegian's future. And finally, then Etihad. So Etihad came out today and said that it was going to resize itself to a mid-sized carrier. That's quite an important statement, actually, for Etihad to make, isn't it? I think it is, because um, obviously you've got the tremendous rivalry between the three major carriers um, in your part of the world, Etihad, Emirates and Qatar, and also some of the the smaller carriers, Gulf Air, Oman, etc., But I think Etihad were already embarked on this path even before COVID. And I think what's happened is they're going to um, accelerate this process and they're probably going to cut a bit deeper than they originally intended. But they were really struggling. Obviously, Abu Dhabi being so close to Dubai, it was really difficult to see the growth plans of Emirates and Etihad both coming off. And there'd been lots of speculation even a year ago that uh, maybe those two carriers might be forced down a merger route at some stage and who knows. Uh, but yes, they have uh, announced that they're going to concentrate on their, um, their regional business. Well, I suppose it's, let's look on the positive. It's the first time we've done one of these and we've got good news right up at the top of the segment. Uh, This vaccine, this rapid testing, again, we might start to see some level of recovery, but, you know, we have to look at this very, very, very tentatively. Uh, Peter, thanks very much. And we will, as always, we'll monitor all of these stories and more as we move on with uh, the Five Aero podcast. So for the second half of our discussion today, we're going to look at one specific aspect. We're going to look at the difference between the hub and spoke airport and the point-to-point airport. It's something that people refer to a lot, but often there's confusion about how those two systems work. Um, Chris, why don't you just give us the 101 overview of of what is the difference between those two different airport types? Well, in very simple terms, it depends on the airline model. And if we're talking about point-to-point airline, it basically means you get on um, your origin and get off at your destination. Um, what we mean by uh, hub and spoke or demand aggregation is where airlines serve a whole different range of origins, really, and aggregate their traffic over their hub, over their key main airport, and then fly to a whole range of destinations. And from a sort of multiplicative way, they offer a much greater range of uh, services. And by aggregating demand, it enables them to offer far more services to the home market than they might otherwise do. So. Yeah, if we look at a low-cost airline, that's point to point. If we look at an airline such as Emirates, 80% or so of the traffic flying on Emirates is uh, connecting traffic. So it goes from uh, an origin over uh, Dubai and then to destination. Many airlines are sort of hybrid. So uh, for British Airways, the figure I always had in my mind was about 30% of its traffic is connecting traffic. If we look to KLM, uh, probably closer to 50-60% and certainly uh, 50-60% for Lufthansa. So... To put that into context, so somewhere like 
Newquay Airport, to give an example, that's a straight point-to-point airport. You're only flying to Newquay or away from Newquay. But somewhere like even Manchester, Birmingham, Heathrow, absolutely, you would move through those airports to fly to somewhere else. Well, uh, you would because uh, it would then offer you an option. And what we tend to find with uh, sort of uh, hub and spoke traffic uh, for the uh, uh, traveller gives them a lot of options and it can be a very competitive part of the market. And if you have a strong so-called origin and destination market, let's say London, London's a very, very strong market, uh, very helpful for the home airline because it can reach break even more quickly. But again, if you're looking at a whole range of options and different travel patterns, by definition, uh, that is highly competed traffic or can be highly competed traffic. And what tends to happen, particularly when markets are slow or particularly when you go into downturn, it's a bit like a race to the bottom of fair, for fares. Very good for travellers, but pretty painful for airlines. And I suppose it also means that one isn't necessarily more profitable than the other. If you get the model right, somewhere like I'm guessing Malaga in Spain, which would be a, a straight point to point, you know, it's a tourism destination, that could still be a very profitable airport where a, a hub that doesn't have the right amount of traffic going through it could be loss making very, very quickly. Uh, I think it all depends. And, and, and you're right, it depends about the type of flow. Uh, it depends on uh, the volume. It depends on the seasonality. You know, what um, airports want and what airlines want is good year round routes with a good mix of rich traffic. That's not always possible. And again, if we look at some of the Spanish airports, the variation between uh, winter uh, and summer is huge. You know, that is, uh, that, that, that's just the way the market is, that's just the way leisure and tourism is. But again, if you look at uh, other, other airports, you look at uh, the Gulf um, uh, uh, hubs in the Gulf, or you look at uh, the transfer uh, hubs in Europe, the objective is clearly to uh, ensure that you have a good volume um, all the year round without too much variation. Any leisure airport, by definition, can have a, a huge degree of seasonality, which means that you know the winter uh, is um, clearly lower and the summer is stronger. And with all the implications and um, consequences for costs uh, that are associated with that. And before we then get into the impact of COVID on these two different airport types, and we will discuss that in a moment, was technology already beginning to see the end of the hub? The, the case that comes to mind is the the Qant- uh, Qantas flight from Perth to London direct, what is it, 17, 18 hours in the sky? Does that mean that the hub model actually in the longer term is is in you know systemic decline? I think uh, you make the right point there about um, the length of flight. And what we've seen over time is that, you know, you now don't need the very largest aeroplane to fly the greatest distance. New generation aeroplane, such as the 787, which is used on the Perth London route, and the A350, uh, and indeed narrowbody aeroplanes such as the A321 um, uh, XLR, uh, will have very long range. And uh, it means that you don't need a large aeroplane to fly lots of seats to uh, go uh, the furthest distance possible. And again, from a sort of demand aggregation point of view, yes, if you've got large airplanes and lots of seats, you can um, fill, fill them with attractive prices. But what we've seen, and we were already seeing it, was uh, the impact of new generation airplanes, uh, longer range, smaller aircraft with uh, very attractive economics, um, reducing uh, the need for transfer traffic. If we look out of the London market, you know, some very important uh, routes from which traffic comes to feed uh, high value transfer traffic. But uh, by the richness of the local market, you know, you don't want to be uh, advertising, competing for transfer traffic with low fare seats, um, where diminished, not just diminishing returns can set in, but they can be loss making. And certainly um, we will see it. I'm not sure whether uh, ultra long haul flights are necessarily the way forward for all sorts of reasons. You know, a lot of capital tied up to, uh, say, um, operate a daily service. 
then you've got sort of physiological issues on passengers and things like that. But certainly what I what we're seeing is with smaller uh, long-range aeroplanes, much greater efficiency, and certainly being in a much better part of the revenue curve or the yield curve for the airline. And I suppose let's get into it. So COVID, obviously, despite all the announcements that we've talked about before, did COVID impact these airports in the same way? And will they respond to COVID in the same way? Because they're very, very different business models, aren't they? Yes, I think what we can see, and if we look at the sort of various states that airlines and airports are in, from sort of hibernation, which sort of came back with a vengeance to the UK last week, um, to those which are predominantly sort of domestic markets, where uh, we've not only seen a restart, then recovery, then we've seen some momentum behind it. And indeed, cross-border in the United States into uh, Mexico and into Latin America, uh, we see a degree of momentum. But if we look at where uh, we've seen hub and spoke airlines, if you want to call them that, or demand aggregators start up, yes, they've begun to try and fly to many of the destinations they serve, although that's not necessarily the case in uh, the case of Emirates, which uh, I, I think is now not flying to 80 of the destinations that used to fly to before. Uh, but in Europe, we certainly saw KLM try to go back to uh, most of its destinations, uh, certainly on the medium haul route, to be able to provide connecting traffic across Amsterdam and then on and beyond. Uh, we've also heard from um, Akbar al-Bakr at Qatar, where he's operating 100 of his previous destinations and intends to take that back to 125 by the year end. And the reason for that, if you look at the way in which connectivity works and you look at just from the sort of multiplicative function, if you start cutting back on the number of routes you operate, uh, then the number of potential destinations you serve falls uh, massively. So if we look at uh, Emirates in, in, in broad terms, uh, they're down from, I think, about 130 destinations down to about 50. But the number of connections that have fallen, uh, on my calculations, the mass might not be right, by about 80%. Or the number of potential connections that have fallen by perhaps about 80%. If we look at uh, it in terms of uh, connectivity, what why the demand, uh, why connecting is attractive is because you have a range of uh, potential uh, destinations that are offered. Uh, and often you have uh, a reasonably short connecting time. If the number of destinations reduces and the connecting time uh, increases, then um, that becomes less attractive for way to travel. And you might go to another hub or, or uh, if there's a point-to-point service available, you might use that. Now, what we've got at the moment is, you know, we're, we're beginning to see restart. We're a long way from taking a view on how it might come back and uh, what it might look like in two, three, four years. Um, but what I think is clear is that whilst we see short and medium-term traffic coming back, reasonably quickly um, and it's going to be once we've got restrictions lifted once we've got quarantine out of the way uh, once uh, we then move to uh, economic drivers predominantly and although for each point on the curve certainly in Europe uh, I expect lower volume and value of traffic international long-haul traffic is going to take much longer to come back for a whole variety of reasons add to that we're also seeing uh, reductions in long-haul fleets um, then uh, the dynamics of the long-haul market and the economics of the long-haul market uh, I think will change or will have changed. It, it, there's so much to discuss in there, isn't there? And we have a separate videocast and podcast over on Infracast about how we think the markets are going to come back. But this point around, you know, if, if hubs aren't careful, they could get locked into this almost vicious cycle, couldn't they, where they lose the connectivity because of the impact that COVID has had. You can't fly border to border or there's, you know, there's restrictions in doing that. Then they lose that connectivity. They lose the, the purpose of the hub. And then as they lose the purpose of the hub, there's less reason to 
to fly there. And you can just see how that could potentially cycle downwards. You look at a point to point, you know, within a, a domestic market or, you know, a reasonable geography. You know, we talked before about Europe being a reasonable geography. You could see how with the friends and family traffic or the leisure traffic, that might become much more viable much more quickly. I think that's right, Andrew, and I think you know, we're, we're a long way from uh, seeing it all work through and how, how it might recover. But, um, you know, as, as we said in uh, our Infocast podcast, um, the view is that visiting friends and relatives traffic, as you say, will come back quickly or much more quickly and already came back quickly when we saw some restarts. That will be followed by leisure. So almost by definition, those uh, airlines and airports which are more dependent on VFR traffic and leisure traffic um, will see, we'll see a quicker recovery. But again, what I say, we've got to get the restrictions out of the way. We've got to get um, quarantine out of the way. Uh, and then it's going to be driven by economic factors. And again, you know, uh, generalizations are hugely dangerous. And um, we have to look at it at an airline level. We have to look at a um, route level. We have to look at an airport level. And uh, each has a different set of characteristics. Each has been uh, affected differently. Um, and again, e- even looking at the impact in the local airport catchment area, when we have to take into account yeah, how many people might have lost their jobs around there, what the structure of the unemployment was, what the economic impact of the uh, lost household income is. And um, again, that may seem very sort of um, uh, narrow and very focused, but uh, to look at it from the bottom, the bottom up, I think that you've got to take factors like that into account. But as a general point, um, we've already seen, we saw it with Singapore. Singapore as a hub had, had sort of gone ex-growth. Um, and certainly my view on um, uh, the Heathrow market, that had happened as well because of different competition and different changes. But uh, let's see how these markets uh, come back and let's see how much capacity there is that's put into the market and how quickly. Because as you say, um, if you begin to reduce the services, you begin to reduce the frequencies, then the attractiveness of, uh, of a particular hub can fall away quite quickly. It all starts to become kind of, I know we're discussing themes that we've discussed before on on this podcast, but they're all relevant. You start to see again why revenue diversification for the hub in particular, because by definition, they are bigger with bigger infrastructure, with bigger overheads, making sure that they, they have other sources of revenue that are not directly linked to the passengers. So, you know, you've got your cargo facilities, your lease, your leasable areas, that, that concept of the airport city. That's, that's incredibly important for the hub, isn't it? Where it, it might not so be so much for the domestic market or the point to point because they know exactly where their traffic is coming from. I think that's right. And we've, we've seen some airport city developments or a number across the world. But again, I, I think if we look at it and we look at what drives it and whether it's um, for, for um, cargo, for repair centers or you know, product that can be brought in, turned around, flown out, yeah, they're, all, they're all sorts of things. And it's, uh, it's not just sort of um, large hotels that people to go meet um, for a, a, an easy way for, for, for business meetings or conferences. And again, uh, against that background, uh, I, I think we're going to see quite a while before we see uh, meetings, incentive, conference, uh, travel coming back on the business side. And I think, you know, more generally, business traffic is um, certainly over the next 12 months or 12 months from when we see a lifting restrictions may uh, only get back to about 30% of what it was um, in the 12 months before COVID. But yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Um, you look at uh, making a growth hole in the growth center and it's not just direct aviation activities that, uh, uh, may be important, but you know, when the when the industry gets coming back, go, go, starts flying again, um, and we see volumes coming back, and yeah, look, I think you know if if we look at it, people have talked about the existential threat to the industry. I don't think there is, not certainly not on the demand side. Demand will come back, 
and it will be driven by a, 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 a range of factors. The existential threat is to the current supply side and supply side as we know it. And that's where the greatest changes will be. Um, demand, as I say, will come back, um, and it will come back at different paces and at different, uh, at different rates and different countries and different markets. But, um, you know, the confidence will recover. And we saw when there were restarts, people uh, wanted to fly, they wanted to get uh, back on aircraft. So, um, yeah, what we've got now is continuing restrictions. Uh, none of us know quite when they're going to lift. I, I think um, they, you know, what, what is certain they will do. Uh, and then once they've lifted, um, passenger confidence broadly is there. And then it comes back to um, economic and related factors that will drive growth. Uh, and then we move back through recovery. And then in, in some markets, reasonably quickly, we go back on the growth track again. Well, I suppose it's something that we're going to have to keep our eye very carefully on. Uh, the recovery and, and these green shoots that we talk about and just how it really plays out between this point-to-point and this hub model. It will be very interesting to watch. Chris, thanks very much and we'll see you next time. Thank you.